I'm wanting to talk about uh, hope, and I would want to say that uh, having whoops, having kids is a radical act of uh, of hope, and parenting them well is a radical act of hope as well. Uh, in a consumer-driven society, uh, increasingly, you know, people aren't behaving that way, and uh, it's one of the things that I think will set the Christian church apart increasingly in uh, in uh, generations to come is the fact that we're committed to family, uh, we're committed to parenting, uh, we're committed to intergenerational thinking. We don't have to have a quick fix for everything. We don't have to see everything change now. We actually believe that there is a radical nowness, there is a radical future, there is a great tradition. Uh, we have a greater breadth uh, to our imagination, to our commitment, to our hope. And so I've uh, entitled this uh, short presentation uh, Extreme Hope uh, for Extreme Times. And I, I just noticed as uh, you're talking about the village, which sounds fantastic, uh, words like radical and extreme makeover, uh, these are times when we use extreme language. Words like hyper and mega and awesome and radical uh, come out of our lips really easily. And they do out a wider culture as well. And I actually want to suggest that Understanding the extreme and radical and awesome aspects of a changing world is something that Christians need to do a little bit better because we have an extreme gospel. Uh, the gospel is extreme because it's about death and resurrection. There's nothing more extreme than what happened when Jesus rose from the grave, um, but he did so in a way that no one expected Jewish people weren't looking for a Messiah who would uh, quietly walk out of the garden tomb and then return to heaven and send the Holy Spirit and usher in this age of mission in which we find ourselves some 2,000 years later. There's a Christian theologian who's written a book called Everything is Changing. And uh, that's not true. Everything's not changing, but there is a lot that's changing and I want to suggest actually that uh, being wise in the 21st century is figuring out the relationship between what is changing and what's not changing. In other words, don't believe the lie that everything's changing. Everything's not changing. One thing that's not changing is the gospel, the story of Christ's death and resurrection. And Christians will increasingly, I hope, be among the most radical thinkers who put together well that which is changing in its relationship with that which is not changing that which is fixed and certain and sure and established in its relationship with that which is radical and shifting and changing and in flux all the time. But sometimes we feel completely overwhelmed by this uh, radical changing shape of culture. And uh, one of the ways we're going to contend with that is to tell the biblical story well and then make sense of what is radically changing in the light of what is beautifully fixed and established in God's word, the, the foundations for truth and goodness and beauty. We don't want to fall for the lie that everything is changing. It's just not. I've got two or three goals for this uh, short time that we have together this morning. And the first is to say, if we're going to get the gospel, if we're going to get the big story, then we're going to have to not only read it as a unified whole story. And we were saying yesterday at the men's time that uh, we've sort of dumbed it down a little bit because 
When we lose the radical shape of the Old Testament, of the law and the prophets and the wisdom writers, we then lose the radical shape of the gospel, of the cross and the resurrection, and then we lose the radical shape of discipleship, and then we lose the radical shape of being Christian in the 21st century. In other words, the dumbing down of the Christian message starts by not reading the whole Bible, by not reading books like Joshua, by not understanding the law, by not understanding books like Lamentations and what happened to Israel during his exile, it's critical to understand Jesus that we understand the whole story. But secondly, in asserting that, we also want to understand that if we're going to get the whole story of Scripture well, we've got to understand how it's made up of these wonderful, diverse stories that cohere in a great story. And I want to talk for a little while this morning about Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. When I first became a Christian, there was a movement around which said to prove that the Bible is inerrant, let's put them all together into one big Jesus telling and see whether all the details fit. It was sort of born out of a suspicion that the history of Jesus was not clear and was contradictory in the foretellings of the gospel. In doing that, the distinctiveness of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John were destroyed. And so I've been working over the last years to reaffirm and re-understand for myself how Matthew is different to Mark, to Luke, to John as they gaze on the great gospel story from four incredibly distinctive perspectives so that we get the fullness of what Christ has done. I've tried to imagine that and I've, I've charted it and I've visualised and I've come up with four photographs that capture that for me and I want to show you these and then come to Luke today. Matthew, for me, is like a big five-bedroom mansion um, because Matthew orders his gospel account of Jesus in these blocks of teaching. And uh, I think of going into Matthew as like going into a comfortable house and sitting down with a rabbi and being instructed. This is my visual for Matthew. But Mark, Luke and John are nothing like that. Here's Mark. My photograph for Mark is this deep, dark, brooding lake or pond, the depths of which have never been plumbed. Mark takes us into the gospel and into profound suffering. It's not well-ordered blocks of teaching so much as an account of Jesus organised around the passion predictions of chapters 8, 9 and 10 where Christ says, don't you know what I'm going to suffer? And the end of the gospel is this speechless amazement at the ransom of the Son of God. That's not what Luke is like. Here's my shot for Luke, which I really like. Luke is like a vast rambling vista of rich, varied, open countryside. It's Jesus on the move, journeying to Jerusalem finding lepers and mealing with Mary and Martha and touching and talking and supping and parable and it's a, it's a Jesus on the move. And just when you get to the horizon of Luke with its expansiveness, you've got the book of Acts which takes you to the next horizon. That's not what John is like. Here's my shot for John. John is this amazing statement of having coming down to earth to stay. 
Heaven comes down to earth. Jesus breakfasts on the beach. The Logos becomes incarnate and you've got this fantastic reflection on the unifying of the cosmos around the Logos of the world under the Lordship of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, if you're a visual learner or you're a person for whom this helps, let me say, you should be doing this, I should be doing this for all the books of Scripture. Find photos, take photos, draw the Scriptures, poem the Scriptures, sculpture the Scriptures, symbolise, do whatever you need to do to get the contours of the books of the Bible and love them for their distinctiveness and then put them together in this whole story which is rich and varied. Now today I just want to come to Luke and the final words of Luke around this idea of radical hope. If we're going to understand the books of the Bible well, there's three things that will help us. One, pay close attention to where a book starts. Two, pay close attention to where it ends. And three, pay close attention to the crucifixion scene because this is the heart of each of the four gospel tellings. It's interesting, not, not only interesting, but informative, I think, for me today anyway, that the Malays have called their kids Hannah and Samuel because Luke's gospel starts with a reworking of the Hannah-Samuel story uh, from the books of Samuel. So Jesus in Luke is a greater Samuel and Jesus in Luke grows in favour with God and with man in wisdom and stature as Samuel did, Jesus does in a greater way. But here is where the book of Luke concludes. These words are words of radical hope. And Luke's gospel is a book of radical hope. And if you're struggling with this issue of hope today, let me say go home and spend some time, some deep time, reflecting in Luke. Here is how Luke finishes his book. Jesus then led them out as far as Bethany, Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. And that's the end of Luke's book. Why is that such a significant ending and how is it different to Matthew and Mark and John? Let me draw out um, three points today. Notice, first of all, this language of he parted from them and was carried into heaven. Luke's whole book is about the ascension. Now, this is one of the greatly, I think, neglected aspects of the gospel. We talk a lot about Jesus dying and Jesus rising, but I'm not sure we talk enough about what it means that Jesus ascends. And Luke's whole gospel is shaped and framed by this idea that Jesus returns to the Father. In fact, in Luke's gospel, from chapters 9 to 19, as Jesus goes to Jerusalem to the cross, he doesn't talk in Luke's gospel about suffering and death very much. It's not a sad account. As he goes to Jerusalem, he talks a lot about ascension, homecoming, going to the Father, receiving the Spirit. And so in Luke's Gospel, as against Matthew and Mark and John, you've got contours of 
gathering and community and inclusiveness and finding that which is lost all through Luke. See the language here? He parted from them and was carried into heaven. Theologically, the words he was carried into heaven are really significant. Begs the question, who carried him? Where's this language coming from? And I want to suggest it comes from several places in the Old Testament. You remember way back in Genesis, um, you've got this long genealogy and it comes to the life of Enoch. And Enoch lived for so many years and then it says, and he was not for God took him. Enoch is taken by God. And then you get the life of Elijah and it says he was taken up to God in a whirlwind. So you get this idea here that Jesus like Enoch, Jesus like Elijah is taken. But how is he taken in Luke? He's taken on a cloud. What is that cloud? Well, it's what theologians call the Shekinah cloud. That is the glory cloud. It's like God comes down in a cloud, as he did on Sinai when he met with Moses. And Moses went up into that cloud, but then he came back again. Jesus goes into that cloud and meets with Father God again, and he's taken up, and he moves through the clouds into the presence of God where he is enthroned and then pours out the Holy Spirit. Jesus is taken and carried into the presence of the Father. Why does this matter? Can I say it ought to be the subject or the content of our Christian imagination? Why does it matter? Because today there is a human being on the universe throne. Christ is risen. He's not only God. Yes, he's God, son of God, second person of the triune God. But he's also a risen, resurrected, flesh, bone, human being. As Mark often says with eye caps and knee brows, uh, (laughs) eyebrows and knee caps and a spleen. He is a risen human being who is seated on the throne of the universe. Who do you talk to when you pray? Who do we trust in? Someone just like us, who's been through birth, who's grown through teenagers, who's lived as a human, who's struggled with temptation, who sympathises and understands. Where is he today? The scriptures say that in his human resurrection, he governs the universe. The ascension of Jesus puts our brother on the throne. We realise this in Luke, more so in Acts, but in detail in the book of Hebrews. And so when you're reading the scriptures, let me say, go from Luke to Hebrews and understand that the the author of Hebrews says, look guys, when you feel like giving up, when you're not persevering and fighting on, when your hope is running dry, What you need to know is that someone just like you has won and is seated on the throne and is listening to you and loves you and understands you and has been through every temptation you've been through, who went to the cross, rose from the dead and is on the throne of the universe. This ascension of the human Jesus 
is good news for hope. And Hebrews pushes it right through and says, don't give up. Set your eyes on Jesus, who's gone to the throne of the universe and he's just like you. Loneliness is a huge issue in the 21st century. And yet this Jesus on the throne of the universe surely says to us, I have someone who understands, who is not just risen but is ruling, who is not only God but is human, who is not only living but Lord of all things. There is no cold, distant God ruling this world. It's a flesh and body resurrected human being, Jesus. You know, I spoke about this uh, several years ago with a youth pastor from another church in Auckland and they said, that's not right. Surely when Jesus went through the clouds back to God, he put off his human body. Isn't he spiritual? I said, the word spiritual doesn't mean that in scripture. It means a human being who is completely under the governance of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean disembodied. It means spirit governed. Jesus in resurrection and enthronement is human. He didn't put off his flesh as though he could. He loves humanness. He loves embodiedness. He is coming again as a human. This statement at the end of Luke would say that one of the key contours to the Christian story of hope is that Jesus, the risen human, rules the universe. Luke likes this story so much that when he starts his second book, the book of Acts, he starts with the same scene. He tells it again because it really does shape his thinking. Let me say two other things about the text here. Look at the language here of blessing. Luke's gospel is all about being blessed. When the Passion of the Christ came out, we had this uh, remarkable, I think, vision of suffering of sacrifice, of hardship. And uh, as far as it went, it was helpful, I think. But it didn't go far enough because the other contour of the gospel is blessing and joy and community and gathering of people. It's not only the hardship of Christ's suffering, that's Mark's story, it's also the blessing and the joy of coming to God the Father. You know, in Mark's gospel on the cross, Jesus only says one thing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what about in Luke's gospel? What does he say from the cross? He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, don't weep for me. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is full of joy and hope and blessing. And here is the language of blessing that has characterize the gospel account and it's threefold in the ending and let me point out now that language the language of worship and great joy the language of great joy is for those who know christ is risen and ruling ascended and enthroned the language of great joy has been all through the gospel of luke in fact The word for great joy in Luke's gospel is not the normal Greek word kara or that, that idea of joy. It's a word which means exultant, overflowing with joy, jumping for joy. And you know it's actually used of Jesus in Luke 10 when he's on the road to the cross. It says he was overjoyed in the spirit. It's also used of the baby 
in Elizabeth's womb when Mary comes to visit. The baby leaps for joy. John leaps for joy in her womb. This great joy word is all through Luke. If we get the gospel, we do understand something about suffering, discipleship, sacrifice. We also get something about blessing and great joy. I do want to point out, however, that in Jesus' words of blessing in Luke, he includes the idea, blessed are you when you weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when you are persecuted and shunned and scorned, you will rejoice. In other words, this blessing here has got both a now but a not yet shape to it. And perhaps as my last point, here is the key to Christian hope. Christian hope can be summed up with two words, I think, from Luke and the rest of the scriptures. And I find these very helpful. One is the word gift. The other is the word promise. Sometimes people say, look, I'm really disappointed with God. I'm disappointed with the church. I'm disappointed with Christian life. It's not working out that well. And I think sometimes that's a pretty valid complaint because sometimes I think churches actually promise people too much. Sometimes we don't promise them enough and sometimes we promise them too much. Why? Because we've got to get the relationship of gift and promise right. What do we mean by this? Christian hope is a gift. We have it now. And Paul says in Romans, it doesn't disappoint us. What do we have as a gift now? We have the comfort of Holy Spirit. We have the risen human Jesus ruling from the throne of the universe, listening to us, sympathizing with us, interceding for us, loving us, just like us, knowing us, understanding us. We have the body of Christ and incorporated group represented here this morning sharing in the Holy Spirit and his wonderful gifts. We have a foretaste. We have the first fruits. We have enough to struggle on with joy. But we don't yet have it all. We do have gift, but we also have promise. And the promise is that there's more to come. And the more to come needs to shape our imaginations and our purposes and our long-term commitments, perhaps a little more than it does at the moment. What is the more to come? Well, it's seeing the Lord face to face. It's living in a world of justice. It's doing away with sin and evil. It's dealing with my mortality. It's taking care of sickness and disease and grief and sadness and, and the poisons in the world once and for all in the new heavens and the new earth a place of God's shalom or peace. There is promise as well as gift. The promise is contained in the books that take us right to the end of the biblical story, particularly the book of Revelation. And so I like to say to our students at Laidlaw, you know, Christian hope, like Christian grace, is not cheap. It's not cheap because it costs Jesus his life, but it's also not cheap in our experience because it has these contours of gift and promise of now but not yet, of first fruits but fullness still to come. It's like we're in the presence of the Lord and we've got a lot that will keep us going, but yes, you need to persevere with that. Yes, you need to wrestle on. 
and sure you know that Jesus wins in the end. Let me give you this quote from a Christian author on hope. The Christian is called to live for and among the sinful and the suffering and thus as one already dead yet alive in the spirit, free, loving and joyful. Buoyed up and enlivened by hope in the very midst of suffering and hopelessness. Such hope far surpasses ordinary optimism which asserts itself against a threatening future by an effort of positive thinking or emotional enthusiasm, however much wisely and cautiously tempered. Hope in the spirit is a hope against hope, a hope that lives beyond destruction in the power of God. It is therefore hope in the future of the crucified God. Christian hope is something to fight for, grounded in resurrection and the return of Christ. It is something we experience now and yet look forward to in ever greater fullness in the future. What do hopeful Christians look like? Well, let me say, what do I look like when I'm feeling hopeless? When I'm feeling hopeless, I withdraw from a relationship. I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. I stop being responsible. I stop working hard. I give up on the tougher issues of life. I start thinking only about the now and not the intergenerational long-term future. Hopeful people are committed to fighting, to courage, to relationship, to child-rearing, to responsibility, to changing this nation for the next hundred years. Hopeful people keep studying and developing their gifts and working persistently because they know that in the end we cannot lose because Jesus has guaranteed the future through the gospel. Careless people have lost hope. Irresponsible people have lost hope. But Christians, we haven't lost hope. We've got the first fruits. We've got the gift and it doesn't disappoint us. And we've got the promise of an overwhelming future of joy in the new heavens and new earth. So press on. It's tough and hope is not cheap. It costs Jesus his life. And yet hope is perhaps the greatest message that we have for a generation that is increasingly living out of suspiciousness and despair. I hope that's of some encouragement to you. It certainly is to me. And please go home and read deeply the book of Luke. Let me pray for us and we'll see where to from here. Father God, we are blessed this morning. Blessed by the gift of music, blessed by the gifts of youth ministry, of church, of dedicated volunteers and workers and staff of uh, the community. Blessed um, by a creation that is ordered by your word. Blessed by the gospel of death and resurrection, ascension and enthronement. Blessed by the Holy Spirit, And we want to express our gratitude. And also, Lord, we want to express that we need your grace to persevere, to struggle on, to wrestle, to imagine more holistically than perhaps we've done before. Thanks for the gospel. Thanks for this church, this community. Father, 
Lead us on for your purposes. Help us to be people of responsibility, work, reflection, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.